thousand years ago, the animals of the world had enough, and they did what any logical beast would do. They took man into court to sue them for cruelty. It would seem like a pretty easy case, but a lot would hang in the balance. Or at least this is the story that was told a thousand years ago. Today, on the golden age of Islam, we're going to continue to look at the mysterious group known as Ikhwan Asafa and their most famous and controversial writing, The Case of the Animals Against Man. So please stay with us. Okay, welcome back. Today we're going to be looking at one of the most fascinating parts of the encyclopedia of the Ikhwan Asafa, whom we discussed in the previous episode. It is by far the longest part of the entire encyclopedia, and it's often been translated and published as a separate book. In fact, if you go on the internet and look for the writings of Ikhwan Asafa, this is what you're probably going to find, is just the case of the animals against man. Well, this subject was way ahead of its time for the 11th century. Really, it would be way ahead of our time today. Now, of course, there are a lot of animal rights advocates today, but I think few would go as far as the Ikhwan did in this story. By any measure, the idea of animal rights in the Middle Ages is going to be much different than what we consider today. So we should first look at the issue in Islam in general. And this is an often misunderstood issue uh, because when Americans go to nearly any Muslim country today, they're often upset by the treatment of animals there, and they tend to generalize this towards Islam as a whole. Now, of course, nobody treats pets the way we do in our society. Now. As I am putting this episode together, my two dogs are sleeping on the couch, so you know where I stand on that. But a lot of what people report has to do with the economic conditions in third world countries. If you go to a rural Egyptian village where there's a lot of poverty, yes, you're going to see uh, some pretty pitiful conditions for farm animals. But the conditions for humans are not much better themselves. And so we have to also be honest, the concerns we have today for free-range chickens and the like, it's pretty new even in our society as well. So this is a particular area like many in Islam where we have to look at the context. By 7th century standards, Islam's rules about animals were far more kind than what had come before. And even if we're looking at the time the Ikhwan are writing about the 11th century, treatment of animals in Islam was way better than what it was in Europe. But of course, if we compare that to what we um, discuss today in our society, it's going to be different. And, and this is the same with many issues we discuss in Islam. So as far as what the Quran itself says, Probably the most cited verse on this subject is the sixth surah, ayat 38, which states, quote, 
There is not an animal that lives on earth, nor a being that flies on its wings, but they form communities like you. Nothing we have omitted from the book, and they shall be gathered to their Lord in the end. The Quran also says that all the animals praise God in their own ways, without using words to praise God. And the Hadith, which of course are the reputed statements of the Prophet Muhammad, can be even more specific. Uh, at one point he says, Whoever is merciful even to a sparrow, Allah will be merciful to him on the day of judgment. Another Hadith says, A good deed done to an animal is like a good deed done to a human being, while an act of cruelty to an animal is as bad as cruelty to a human being. There's even one story at one point where the prophet came across a woman who had a cat that she neglected so badly that it died. And he said that she was going to have gone to hell. Well, that's a lot further than Christianity goes, for sure. And this is related in to some extent to the centrality in Islam of God's oneness, which of course is the message of Islam, the oneness of God, the inseparability. And that of course goes for his creation as well. God made everything, and to some things he gave different degrees of consciousness. Some things are a lot more conscious than others. But whereas the Bible tends to make it all about man, and everything else was created just to keep man company. I mean, all the animals were created just to keep Adam company, but they weren't enough, so God had to create a woman. Um, but the trees and the rocks and the stars, you know, all the billions of stars in the sky were just put in there for decoration for man. Well, that's very much the Christian point of view, whereas Islam is tending to look at it more of everything is God's creation, and it's all one, and everything is important, and particularly the Ikhwan are really going to pick up on this. So we already saw in their earlier philosophy from the previous episode that they found a way, coming from Aristotle, to include the stars as part of God's direct interaction of man. This is one of the way God's will came to man. So there's a sense here uh, that anything God created uh, is going to be part of his whole relationship with him. Now, some things like man have an advanced brain and they can talk. But even the animals, the birds, praise God by their flying, even the rocks and the trees and so forth. Now, it's not ever discussed specifically whether animals have souls or not, but as part of God's creation, they're not merely things meant to be used by humans. Um, they're, as we see here, you're supposed to respect them and treat them well. Well, okay, so far so good. But the Quran is also very clear that man has dominion over the animals and can use them for food and for work any way he sees fit, except in some areas where there are restrictions, like, say, on eating pork. So probably the most controversial issue today in this regard is the killing of animals for halal meat. Uh, now, a lot of texts refer to this as ritual slaughter, which, I mean, sounds, sounds bad. It's a very emotionally loaded term, but we're, we're talking about the correct 
uh, Islamically approved way of uh, preparing meat. Okay, so anyway, halal meat, of course, like kosher meat, has to be prepared in a certain way. In addition to how the animal is raised, which is one thing, blessings have to be said before the animal is killed. And there's a specific way the animal has to be killed. Um, so like for beef, and the animal is killed by one slash across the throat, which cannot cut the spine and so forth. So there's a lot of rules, and so that's why a person has to be specifically trained to know how to do this. It's very similar to the kosher process, by the way, because they're both essentially coming from the same source. Well, we could do a whole episode on this one subject, and there has been a lot of discussion back and forth about whether this is more or less unpleasant for the animal than what goes on at your typical American slaughterhouse, which is also not a very pretty sight. And so there, there are scientists on both sides who will give you arguments one way or the other to say that slashing the animal's throat is either slower and more painful or quicker and less painful. So it's, it's one of those things. Um, but it certainly seems more personal and more bloody and in more hands-on than the way it's done in slaughterhouses, which, you know, um, with mass production. So anyway, we're not going to solve that issue here today, but I think the key point is that back when these laws were made over a thousand years ago, this was definitely the most humane and least painful method that they could come up with. Uh, and so other communities didn't have any rules about this. But they said, you know, if you're going to kill this animal to eat it, you have to do it in the, the quickest and most humane way that you could. And so that's the way they did it. Now, like many other things we find in, in Islam and other religions, when we come forward to the 21st century, what is it we're supposed to be doing? Following the letter of the law, exactly what it says, or the spirit of the law? And that's one we could um, debate endlessly, and people do. But the point is that when these rules were made, they were intending to be as humane as they could. It's not a subject that was a big concern back then. I mean, yes, you were supposed to be kind to animals. And the simple economics of farming meant that you should treat them well anyway. But we're still talking about the Middle Ages, um, when you were likely to have a, a horde of nomads come sweeping through your village and kill every single person. So there were a lot bigger things they were uh, worried about. So when the Ikhwan bring up this issue of animal rights, you know, they're really stepping out. They're really going to something that was, you know, way ahead of their time. Another important part of this is to remember the holistic attitude that the Ikhwan have. As we said before, they are essentially trying to combine every kind of philosophy that exists in the world into one thing. They're not just trying to analyze Muslim concepts. So, on this subject, 
uh, Hindu and Buddhist views are going to come in, which of course have much stronger rules against harming animals. So like Muslims don't eat pigs because they're considered dirty, but Hindus refrain from eating beef because the, the cow is sacred. So not only do you not eat it, but you have to respect it and avoid harming it even accidentally. And of course, a strict Buddhist should never harm any living thing. So we're getting an influence from that side as well. And so they're going to try and put all this together, but still respect uh, the Muslim scriptures, which is what they do. So anyway, on to the story. Well, this part of the encyclopedia is a little bit unusual because it is told as an imaginative story, and it's the only one that is. Uh, and so for the most part, you're reading like encyclopedia entries that are meant to be like a textbook, and then we get this, what is essentially a fable. Now, we, as we said, these epistles were essentially letters that they were passing around. So the fact that one of them would be of a different format than the others is you know not really that outlandish because they weren't trying to write one entire book they were later put together into a book um, so this was a, essentially a story that someone found interesting and thought-provoking so anyway when we get to this section of the encyclopedia which is by far the longest one we first get a very long discussion about all the animal and plant species which starts with God creating each type and why they were made a certain way and so forth. I mean, it's meant to be a comprehensive encyclopedia of all animal and plant uh, species of the time. So you go through a lot of that, and then we get to this part, which is going to deal with the treatment of animals. And it starts with a story. And this is typically where it picks up if you get a book on this particular subject. So it starts with being told that when God created man, humans spread out over all the world and subdued the animals, and used some of them as beasts of burden, others for food, others for fur, and so on. Then God sent Muhammad to be the messenger. So that's the background for this story. Now, that part, I'm sure everybody took as fact. I mean, that was all well established. From here, it starts to get into some more obscure points of the theology. Uh, the next thing we're told is that when the prophet brought the message to all the creatures, there was a group of jinn who accepted the message and became Muslims. Now, jinn are magic creatures. They're said to be made from fire. And this is where we get the word genie, for example. Uh, the concept existed before Islam, and they were very popular in pre-Islamic Arabian society. So as Islam spread, it absorbed a lot of things from folk religions in the areas that it spread to, and this was one. So this concept was incorporated into Islam. And so this was useful because a lot of the spirits and minor gods that were uh, present in these pagan religions uh, the ones that people spent a lot of time trying to appease, these could now be classified as jinn. This was a way to work them in. But of course, Islam had to put them in their proper place. So in order to do this, the jinn were said to be lower in rank than the angels. 
and on the same level as humans, but they have um, supernatural characteristics. And actually, jinn are mentioned 29 times in the Quran, and there's even an entire surah named after them. So it's said that the Prophet Muhammad preached to jinn and humans, of course, and some of both camps re rejected him. So the jinn who rejected him became evil spirits, and others who accepted the message, uh, you know, they became believers. So this is not a completely mythical idea that the Ikhwan are making up. Uh, even today, according to surveys, 86% of Muslims in Morocco uh, believe in jinn, and it goes down from there to about 40% in Southeast Asia. So there's a whole spectrum. But we're talking about a majority of people in most Muslim countries believe in the existence of jinn. Now, if that sounds a bit strange, if you were to ask people in America if they believe in angels, uh, you're probably going to get a majority who say, yes, they do. And so it's, you know, it's similar in that sense. Anyway, from this point on, however, it becomes um, a completely an imaginative story, and it's, it's meant to be taken that way, not as a true story. So what happens from here on out is God appoints one of these loyal jinn, one of these believers, as the king over a realm which is called Sa'un, which is said to be somewhere in the Indian Ocean. And this, this realm is an island full of all kinds of animals, but no humans. And they all live in harmony and happiness, as you would imagine, until one day a storm blows a boat full of humans off course and they land on this island. Well, you know how things are going to go from here. Uh, because the story's already told us at the beginning what humans did uh, the first time they spread out over the earth. Now they're landing on this island, which they haven't found before. What are they going to do? Well, they're going to do the same thing that they did before. So they, they find the island to be quite satisfactory. It has everything you need. They spread out. They establish their communities. And they do the same things to animals that they did in the rest of the earth. They make them into beasts of burden. They slaughter them for meat. They use them for fur and, and so on. This, of course, makes the animals very unhappy. I think you would be unhappy if this happened to you. So the animals get together, and they appoint leaders, and they're going to go appeal to the, the jinn king, who, remember, he's, he's the dominion over this island, to help them. And there's actually a long story here, and it's in, in some ways kind of humorous and kind of interesting in you know how they decide who are going to be the leaders for the various animal groups. You know, they're trying to pick who can be the leader. So, like, they're trying to pick the, the leader of the insects, and they find, like, well, the mosquito, well, you can't send him because he, he annoys everybody and so forth. And so they settle on the bee. Well, people like the bee. Everyone likes the bee, right? So the bee gets to be the, the spokesman uh, for the, the insects and so forth. So they go to the Jin king, who, of course, is um, very just, very fair, right? He's this you know, devout believer, and he hears this story, and he calls on the humans to come to his court so that he can settle the issue, and it's from this we get the case of the animals versus the humans. Now, of course, 
the animals in this story can talk. They would have to, right? Um, at least they talk when they're in court and the humans can understand them. I'm, I'm not exactly sure from this if they were talking the whole time that, you know, humans were cutting them up for meat and uh, using them to carry loads. Uh, but definitely, um, <laughs> once they get to court, they can talk back and forth. Um, now, of course, you would think if, you know, if, if animals could talk back to us, we would probably stop eating them and, and, and such. I mean, you can imagine uh, going to a farm and trying to load a cow on a truck to take it to the slaughterhouse and it starts talking back to you saying not to do this. You would probably leave it alone. But anyway, this is this is imaginative. So they're going to have a, this case about the way the humans are treating them. Now, I would think at this point that this is going to be a slam dunk case. I mean, if animals ever do learn to talk and they are able to launch a court case against humans, uh, I would think they've got enough evidence to, to have the human race locked up forever. I mean, be, be honest. I mean, the only reason that we get away with doing what we do to animals is because they, they can't stand up for themselves, right? Um, so, and, and really, would you want to eat a steak if the cow could talk back to you? Uh, other than the Hitchhiker's Guide to the, the Galaxy, of course, where they breed these cows that actually want to become steak. But that's that's off topic, but it is another uh, imaginative story. Anyway, to get back to this, I mean, the idea is th this is a thought experiment. Um, they're trying to say, you know, with the kind of philosophy that the Ikhwan have, where they look at everything logically and try to do everything from a point of fairness and, you know, universal ethical laws, it's logical to ask, well, you know, what would the animal that you are killing say if it could say something? So that's the point we have here. Okay, so... You know, we should also distinguish that this is a philosophical experiment. Arabic literature has lots of stories with talking animals and animals uh, personified. Uh, we have lions as kings and jackals as counselors and so on. And, and those animals are clearly just surrogates for actual humans. We've talked about these before. But that's not what this is. So this is not one of those entertainment stories or humor stories uh, this is meant to address the situation of real animals as an ethical philosopher might do. So it's something like Cheaty from The Good Place would do. But, of course, if they had gotten him, you would never get a decision. But anyway. Okay, so that was just to put all that in perspective. Now, our subject in some of the previous episodes, we talked about Abu Allah al-Ma'ari, who was a dedicated vegan well, he definitely would have sided with the animals on this. In fact, he already had sided in his own life. But we really don't know enough about the Ikhwan to know whether they were vegetarians or not. But it really wasn't a, a very common thing. And they don't advocate it in their advice that people should become vegetarian. So I think what they are more interested in is the moral and ethical reasoning here. Uh, I mean, just because you have the ability to kill a weaker being and use it, does that mean you ethically have the right to do that? 
And so I, mean, I think that's the point they're looking at. So anyway, on to the case. So both sides accept the authority of the Jin king, and although he is appointed by God to rule this island, uh, the Iguana are, are, are cagey enough here to create a situation where he is hearing this case on its own, and it's uh, as it applies to his island, and he's the king of this island. So they're being cagey enough here not to say that this is God ruling on humans and the animals. They're kind of keeping themselves in the clear. So there's no question about the evidence, and, and nobody tries to deny it. I mean, look, I mean, the, the animals go up there and they tell all the things that the humans are doing to them, but everybody knows this. So the issue is whether they're justified in doing this. And, of course, the human is going to start off uh, thinking he's the best, and so he gets to have the first word. And he states clearly that humans were created to be the masters and that animals were created to be the slaves. He claims that God made the humans to be the bosses and anyone who disobeys man disobeys God. Now, the king, interestingly, does not accept this argument. So, remember, this is a Muslim society, and they're still trying to uphold what the Quran says, but this is not going to be enough. So, the king warns them that his court will consider only arguments based on solid reasoning and logical proofs. Now, that's very interesting, and... That right there is, is maybe the most important point of this whole thing and the, the point of the whole Ikhwan experiment. That they're saying, okay, this is the rule. This is what Islamic law says. But no, we're going to use ethical reasoning and moral logic. It has to make sense. Okay, so it's, you know, it's a bit bold. Um, it's not just pure traditionalism. In any case, the human, the spokesman for the humans, he says, that's okay, no problem. We have philosophical arguments and rational proofs for our beliefs. And, of course, the question is, well, what are those? And so the human says, quote, Our fair form, erect stature, upright carriage, and keen senses, our subtle powers of discrimination, our sharp minds, and superior intellects, all show that we are the masters and the slaves. So essentially, we're smarter and we stand upright. Well, even the king of the jinn seems to buy this argument, and he says, he turns to the animals and says, isn't standing upright the mark of a ruler? And this is coming from Aristotle, by the way, who of course, you know, is is the source, as we saw in the Middle Ages. I mean, he's He's like the Wikipedia of his day, right? I mean, he's the source. Uh, and Aristotle says that when humans were created, their front legs were replaced with arms. I mean, obviously, right? Instead of four legs, you got two arms instead. And man was made to stand up, you know, on two feet. And Aristotle says this is part of his godlike nature. Now, remember, Aristotle is not referring to being like God, the God of the Bible and the Quran. That's not what he means. He means God-like, being like a God. He says that 
and and he goes on you know aristotle it's it's funny sometimes to read him is it he he has these logical physical explanations for everything and and of course his you know his his version of anatomy is is quite you know it's all made up but you know it's it it was accepted at the time so he says that man has to stand upright and able to be to be able to think as wisely as he does right if you're weighed down by a heavy body you lean towards the ground you end up on four legs with your head hanging down and um, that just makes it difficult for you to think clearly in order to be able to use your brain clearly you have to be standing upright okay um, this is some more imaginative science but he, he loves to do this um, you, you know say he's a confident guy okay however all right even though they've they've got the Quran they've got Aristotle the animals do not accept this and the leader of the animals says listen and you shall know that God did not give them this form or shape in this way to mark them as masters nor did he create us in the form we have to brand us as slaves he knew and wisely ordained that their form is best for them and ours for us and then he goes on to a very long exposition to show that every creature is uniquely created for its particular purpose and situation he goes one by one um, why why every animal is the way it is so herbivores they eat off the ground and so they're better designed to go on all fours with their heads facing the ground right makes sense humans have to pick their food from trees therefore they need to be standing up giraffes eat from the the tops of trees so they have long necks now this way everybody's eating from different areas and using different food sources so it all works together in one holistic package and this is going to be a common theme uh, everything that the humans make fun of about animals and say hey look at this isn't this weird the animal is going to show that actually for its specific purpose it works very well now this is very much a platonic idea and we said the the Ikhwan were, were very much influenced by Plato's thinking uh, in in Plato's view everything exists for itself everything is a self-contained system everything has its own organs and systems now this is opposed to the traditional monotheistic view that everything was created for man the stars the planets the animals the plants it was all put there for man uh, no according to Plato everything you know is like its own combined system even if we go to the the most basic animal like they talk about a worm which is like really basic uh, you know it's got a mouth on one end and it excretes from the other end that's about it but it's perfectly designed for what it does now the animals go even further rather than it saying that man is superior or godlike he points out man's weaknesses he says quote god created adam and his offsprings naked and unshod without feathers fleece or wool on their skin to protect them from heat and cold he gave them fruit from the trees as their food and the leaves of trees for their clothing okay so it's noteworthy here that 
humans' food is supposed to be fruit. I mean, they're they're not saying uh, meat, okay? Uh, which of course is you know that's going to be an important part of it. But anyway, it's their weakness that causes them to have to find skins and leaves to protect themselves. A bear or a tiger doesn't have to do that. Uh, so the fact that they're weak is why they can make tools in these other things. Okay, but still, we're, we're still skirting around the issue because the Quran and the Bible both say that humans were created to be the masters. But the king of the jinn, he knows his scripture, so he actually quotes from the Quran, quotes Surah 95, verse 4, quote, We created man in the most beautiful form, end quote. Now, the word here is taqweem. Now, that word can be uh, interpreted uh, actually several different ways, and the book is going to take the liberty as defining it and the best way. So, whereas usually this verse is usually translated as we created man in the most beautiful form, that word form can also mean like a posture which is literally, right, the form. It's this the standing up form. Okay, so what he's saying here, the king is not taking the broad interpretation that man is the most beautiful overright, but he's got the best posture. We created man with the, most, the best posture, the most upright posture. Uh, okay, so, and again, they've already answered this. Okay, yeah, of course man has to stand upright, because he gets his food from the trees. And we know he has to get his food and leaves from the trees uh, because he's, he's naked and he's weak. But in any case, even if you take that interpretation, still the Quran is seeming to say that standing upright is better. Aha! Now this is where we get the very Ismaili turn. Remember as we said, uh, the Ikhwan are generally believed to be Ismaili Shia, and if they're not, they're at least very heavily influenced by Ismaili uh, thinking. And Ismailis, of course, have this important notion that there is a surface meaning and there is a deeper meaning to everything. So surface meaning is, okay, standing up is better. Okay, that would seem to be it. Uh, but the leader of the animals replies, quote, the prophetic books have interpretations and explanations that go deeper than the surface, known to those well-rooted in knowledge. Let the king inquire of scholars expert in the Quran. Okay, that's kind of bold, right? You're questioning the king's reading. I mean, this is the guy who's going to decide your fate, and you're telling him he should go check with somebody who knows better. Uh, you would think you would not want to get him mad. Okay, but... I mean, obviously, this is so clearly an Ismaili thing to say, um, you know, the prophetic books have a deeper explanation than what's on the surface. I mean, this from a, a, a Sunni perspective would be very wrong to say that. No, I mean, it means what it says. Um, but then he says, there are those who know the real truth. So the idea there's already a, a group of people, or in this case, jinn, who are set aside and who have the truth. Okay, so even the animals 
they know what is the best sect out there. Uh, and it turns out the the king does have a jinn who's basically an Ismaili jinn who's an expert on this. Um, and he's, he's able to um, clarify. And so they ask him, well, you know, what does this mean? Aha, so we get to the deeper meaning here. And as they often do, they say you have to interpret this verse in the light of another verse. Aha. Okay, and this one, this is uh, Surah 82, uh, verses 7 and 8, that the expert is going to bring up. And it says, quote, Who proportioned thee in just the form that pleased thy Lord? Aha. So, on the one hand, we're saying that, you know, first we have this verse that says the humans were created in the most beautiful shape which would imply they're created in the image of God. But then we're kind of interpreting that to mean, okay, they, they're they created in the best posture, which means standing up. And then we have this um, verse who's saying that you proportioned in the form that pleased the Lord, meaning essentially it's the best form for you. So yes, mankind is created in the mo- most beautiful form for man for what we want man to do. And the giraffe is created in the most beautiful form for the giraffe and so on. Now, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, anyone who thinks that humans are, you know, better proportioned and designed than all the animals out there, I mean, not really looking. I mean, we, we got some uh, pretty odd things about us. But anyway, the human, however, has, you know, no acceptance of this. The human laughs. I mean, literally, he mocks them. He says, how can you say animals have perfect forms? And then he ridicules what he considers to be ridiculous shapes. The long neck of the giraffe, the trunk of the elephant, the big ears of the rabbit. And of course, this is very arrogant. And this is the way the human comes across. I mean, the human isn't really offering any kind of understanding or analysis, just saying, you know, we're the best, you know, we're better. Um, Look at these ridiculous animals. And he's just made to be very arrogant, whereas the animals are really analyzing it. I mean, even today, I mean, I think most people would say that all those things he mentions are part of the beauty of nature. But this human is not being made to sound very open-minded here. So, of course, um, the animals are going to go through and rebuke every single one of those points. You know, the elephant has a long trunk. Why? Because it works out really well. Uh, The rabbit needs those big ears and blah, 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 right? And you're going to go on and say that God has designed every living thing to be the best for what it does. And they all work together. And this is why, uh, you know, someone can eat off the ground, someone can eat off the top of the trees, and so forth. It's all one nice picture. So obviously here, what we're getting to is much more than just an animals versus humans kind of thing. Uh, The humans in this story are representing very narrow-minded, self-centered thinking. Uh, What we do is right because we do it, and anyone else just has to follow along and suit our needs. They don't consider other views. They don't consider deeper interpretations. Uh, You know, the book says, hey, the book says we can do this. It's legal. We're going to do it. Uh, And, of course, they're 
using this to represent a certain kind of attitude, a certain kind of human being out there. The animals, they represent the kind of thinking that the Ikhwan would do. They look at things from all points of view. I mean, they're able to take scriptures and say what they really mean, to put them all together, to make them all work in harmony. So they're really representing here a way of thinking, uh, the way that enables you to bring in all the knowledge and all the philosophies from all over the world and see the value of them and see that they all work together, right? So um, this is the idea, the basic dogmatic person versus the open-minded person. far now it's going to come to dealing with specific groups of animals one by one um, they bring them up one at a time and in each case the human is going to quote Quranic verses that seem pretty straightforward and the animals are going to respond with their interpretation so the first group that comes up are the beasts and this means animals that are used for food and materials like cattle, sheep, oxen, and so forth. We get skins from them, we get meat from them, uh, we use them to carry things and so forth. And the human is going to quote the very often quoted uh, Surah 16, 5 through 7, which says, Cattle did he create for you, whence you have warmth and many uses. You eat of them and find them fair when you bring them home to rest, or drive them out to pasture. They carry your heavy burdens for you to lands you might reach only with great trouble. Okay, pretty clear, right? You can eat them, you can use them to carry, it's all part of the, uh, the package. Well, this would seem to shut down the opposition, but the spokesman for the beasts, who happens to be a mule, he responds in a very long oratory. And it, it follows the classic uh, Arabic form of the khutbah, which is a public speech, which was a very respected form of art and even competition, much like the, the Greeks, how the Greeks would go into the public square and have these competitions. Well, the Arabs would also. I mean, they have poetry competitions, singing competitions, and also giving a speech. But this was something that a leader would do. And the mule's speech follows this very lovely uh, form. He gives a long prologue, praising God, telling the story of creation, and then he takes on the verses that the human used. And he points out that the Quran also says that God subjected the moon and the stars to humankind. Obviously, this is a metaphor meant to show that these things are the blessings of God, not that the sun is a slave to man. I mean, can man make the stars do what he wants? No. In fact, um, by subjecting the animals to man, what this means is man is supposed to protect them and take care of them. Okay, and there's a big difference here between the way the human talks. Uh, the human is short, 
you know, arrogant, speaks in, you know, just basic, cites the rule and say, hey, this is the way it is. We're the bosses. They're the slaves. The animals speak in this respected Arabic form um, that indicates, you know, great intelligence, great learning in manners and so forth. And again, it's a contrast. I mean, so obviously to think that a mule speaks better than um, a human, even if it's Balaam's donkey, that's not the point. I mean, they don't really believe this. They are contrasting two different types of attitudes. So instead, the mule goes on and he tells the story of how all the animals lived in harmony and peace before the humans showed up. It's once the humans came and encroached on their lands and did all sorts of horrible things to animals. Okay, now, it's clear from this, by the way, uh, as you read this, we can see that the Ikhwan don't really place any stock in the idea of a literal six-day uh, creation. And I discussed this in the previous episode, that um, that is not really a problem for Muslims or Jews uh, because they can read the creation story in the original language. And the word that's used, yom, it's the same word in Arabic and Hebrew, could mean a day, or it can also mean an era or a period of time. It's only the English translation that causes problems and leads to this whole thing of creationism. Anyway, but the point is... Um, we have descriptions of a very long period of time by which animals are living for a long time before they ever encounter humans and, and so forth. Um, so it's clearly not a, a six-day, one-week creation. Well, anyway, you may be listening to this and saying, wait a minute, what do you mean the animals lived in peace and harmony? What about predators and prey, right? We've got carnivores, right? tigers are eating meat and so forth. Aha. So this is where they turn to the carnivores for their side of the story. And they claim that until man came along, animals ate only carrion. That means dead animal flesh. They learned to hunt and kill from humans. So we would assume that what's happening here is that uh, once an animal dies, it's reached the end of its natural life, it drops dead... And immediately, while the flesh is still fresh and everything, uh, the carnivores come in and eat it, and therefore they clean it all up and prevent it from rotting and so forth, and it's all wonderful. Now, of course, I mean, no scientist would claim that this is actually what happened. And it's probably unlikely that this is what the Ikhwan actually believed. But the thing is, they're trying to set this up as a metaphor, as, a, as an analogy. They're using this animals versus humans thing as an analogy. And like any analogy, it's going to run into problems. There are going to be some parts of it that don't work. And so the idea of carnivores, this is the part that's not going to work. And so this is their way of sort of getting around it. Okay, I think what they're trying to do here is not deal with that issue. There, there's certainly... No question that animals, I mean, for the most part, instead of pets like dogs and cats, but for most animals, they're living in more of a harmony and balance. You know, the natural systems are balancing out the number of animals that are killing and being killed. It's all in a nice balance until humans get there. And so there's no doubt about that. But, I mean, to make it sound like a paradise, you, you have to argue away this whole meat-eating thing, which is what they do. Anyway, the point, what they really want to go after is inhumane treatment. 
Um, so they, they don't really talk about whether it's legal to kill animals for meat. They can't because the Quran permits it. But what they're going to do is bring up a long parade of examples of how humans mistreat every type of animal. And they, I mean, they've got them. I mean, they have the elephant comes up, the cow comes up, the ox, the camel, and so forth. Uh, so on an emotional level, they are clearly piling up this evidence, and, and humans don't attempt to refute it. Um, the only argument that they can give is that the animals are the slaves. And their proof of this is, well, we buy and sell them in markets. Now, that sounds kind of like backward logic. Uh, but in any case, it's not going to work because the animal spokesman says, well, you do the same with other humans. One group enslaves another and vice versa. I mean, when one slide wins a war, they enslave the other. So Arabs enslave Ethiopians, but then Ethiopians enslave Arabs, and they give many, many examples of this. So how can it be morally justified? Now, here the Ikhwan are definitely rejecting the idea of slavery, which is very much against their philosophy, even though it is... Um, tolerated, if not uh, expressly permitted in the Quran and the Bible. Uh, but again, this is one of their, their own philosophical ideas, which are based on rationalism. And of course, slavery is the typical example that you use for ethical reasoning. I mean, this is the one you always use in Ethics 101, because it's one that's impossible to be, implied, uh, be applied in, a, in an unbiased fashion. I mean, you, you just can't have everybody enslaving everybody else equally. So it's natural that where you have slavery, one person is exploiting and the other person is the victim. Now, in logical reasoning, that can never be moral. And that's really what they're getting at in this whole case with the animals, saying that, hey, you know, when, when one nation enslaves another nation and then the tide of war goes against them and it switches Obviously, that's just exploitation. Um, that's not something that is inherently moral and ethical. Well, you're doing the same thing to humans as well because you have the power over them. Um, you're, you're exploiting them, and that's what they're doing to animals. Okay, so again, that's just one of the more issues they're going to uh, touch on, and they touch on so many. Well, they, they bring out all this evidence, and they refute all all these points from the humans, it would seem like the animals have a very uh, strong case. And so we want to hear the verdict here. Uh, we especially want to hear how the Ikhwan are going to try and defend this verdict because it's going to create some uh, inconvenience. Well, in fact, we don't get an end to the story. The story ends awaiting the verdict of the king. Now, this may sound like a great disappointment, particularly if you've been listening to this whole show up to this point. Uh, but this really backs up the idea that this particular story was a separate piece that was circulated amongst um, the Ikhwan as a subject for debate and discussion. I think the point was they would, you know, we know that they would circulate these letters and then they'd have their secret meetings where they'd do their discussion. And so here they're giving you this case, giving you both sides of the case, and then, okay, we get together in our groups and we discuss it and we say who we think should win and why and so forth, or the humans should have made this case or blah, blah, blah. And I think that's the point.
Um, and so that is just incorporated in with the rest of the encyclopedia. Now, not to leave you in suspense, the encyclopedia later on mentions that the animals lose the case, but of course the humans are warned, you know, you, you got to be nice to the animals. You got to treat them better, but humans are still uh, in charge. But this part seems to be... Um, tacked on. It seems very clearly that this is something that was tacked on because the story is very much meant in a way to give us two sides of an argument um, so that we can try and puzzle it out. Uh, in, in, but for the record, the, the versions we have of the encyclopedia end with the humans somehow winning this case that they've done a fairly lousy job at. Okay. Uh, but in the end, like much of the Ikhwan. Uh, this is something where they're flirting with some free thinking, but they have to return to the orthodox answers at the end. I mean, what would be the implication of this if they said, okay, no, you know what? Humans don't have any right to enslave animals or use animals. Well, they're pushing the envelope. They're pushing our logical and ethical reasoning. They're making us think. I think in the end, they have to say, okay, what, what are we going to do? We're going to stop eating animals and using animals for things. Uh, but anyway, uh, they were pushing the envelope in a lot of ways, as, as we've seen. They are incorporating a lot of philosophies from outside of Islam. And this is one of the reasons their book was banned. And eventually it was destroyed. It was burned. But nevertheless, uh, enough copies survived. And actually, it has always been very popular both in Europe and in the Arab world. In any case, the Ikhwan don't really give us a solution to this problem, but they do show the range of opinions and ideas that circulated in the Golden Age, even if there were some limits. And so we can see it was a time of very fertile discussion, even if some of that discussion had to be kind of done in secret and without official approval, I mean, this was a time of great exchange of ideas. And so with that, we'll end this episode of the Golden Age of Islam. I thank you again for your very kind support, all your kind comments, and your following us. And we hope to see you again next time. So thank you very much. Shukran jazilin wa ma'asalamah.